Hello and welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. Happy Tuesday. The NBA playoffs are in full swing and I'll be talking all about it. As a reminder, if you have not yet signed up for my weekly newsletter, you should. I would highly recommend it. All you need to do is give me your email address. You can do that in a very simple manner. If you go to www.chrisrawl.com, there is a subscribe button in the top right-hand corner. Click it your email in and every Wednesday morning you will have some random musings from yours truly so go and do that the playoffs are kicking into full gear that's going to be awesome for the next few months between the NBA and the NHL so go and do that um, and now we'll move on to today's episode where I talk about Chris Paul and Kyrie Irving and specific ways of playing defense and what types of teams players and skill sets are built to withstand the pressure. One of my favorite parts of the NFL playoffs, the NBA playoffs, the Stanley Cup playoffs, you name it. Any type of playoff, one of my very favorite parts is seeing what types of teams, players, and skill sets are built to withstand the pressure. NBA playoffs obviously started last Saturday. So now we have a decent amount of games under our belt. Uh, even over the weekend, we're seeing it within the world of golf. It's the RBC Heritage at Harbor Town, which goes to a playoff. Down the stretch, it was just kind of mayhem. Spieth gets into the clubhouse with the lead. And the final six holes or so, people are just hemorrhaging strokes. Sepp Straka's gagging it away on 18, hitting it out in the weeds and making a bogey when a par would send him into the playoff. Lowry's chipping into the water on 14. Harold Varner's just being Harold Varner. Ends up being a seven-way tie for third. We're left with Patrick Cantley and Jordan Spieth, two people who I trust immensely within a playoff setting for pretty different reasons. Cantley, his putter can just get completely scorching hot. We saw that last year when he went into a playoff against Bryson DeChambeau. And it seemed like anytime he was within 30 feet, he just drilled it. Center cup right off the back. And he ended up winning that. Spieth, he gets kind of this misnomer that he's a great putter. But in actuality, that's not really that true. And most definitely not true right now. He's an atrocious putter somehow. Uh, And Spieth's great quality, it's kind of this mysterious spiritual way of playing golf. Uh, keeping things together with duct tape, beating the ball here and there and there, but just finding a way. You sometimes honestly can't even describe the way that Jordan Spieth plays golf and the way that it works. Uh, In the past, it was easier to. Now in present day, especially as he's ended up winning this playoff, you can't really explain it. You're just going, I don't know. There's something to that cliche, Uh, the find a way cliche that sometimes I don't really like. And other times I go, I don't really know how else you describe Jordan Spieth, when he gets into some of these moments, when he gets into this particular playoff at Harbortown and their approach on 18, Cantley just gets completely screwed over. His ball plugs in the front bunker and Spieth hits it in the same bunker. He's up against the lip and I'm going, that looks like a pretty nasty up and down. And instead he opens up the face, splashes it out inside a foot, taps in. Cantley just has to hack it out, misses his par putt. Jordan Spieth is moving on. Playoff settings always kind of inspire this type of creativity uh, and just 
okay, when, when the lights are on and the pressure's at its highest, how are you going to respond? That's a really intriguing proposition to watch, you know? So the NBA playoffs obviously have begun. I'm recording this on Monday, so I'm not going to be talking about any of the games that have taken place today or obviously moving forward. But I've gotten a taste of, okay, these are some of the things that I really like about this particular time of the year. Now, game one's, they're out the window. It's overreaction season. If you want a lot of that stuff, this is not the place for that. You all know this. Um, you can go and find that in, in a lot of different places. What today is going to be about is kind of a piggyback off of last Friday's episode where I wanted to set the stage for, all right, let's talk about what you need to do in the playoffs. What type of teams and players and skill sets are, are built to withstand that pressure with examples from the past, that kind of stuff. Today's a piggyback off of it because we have real games at our disposal now. We've watched some of it on Saturday and on Sunday, and we will tonight and tomorrow and moving forward. And so I get to start picking out threads and going, all right, this person really makes sense. I kind of forget. Jimmy Butler, a dude who in the regular season, yeah, great, you know, good NBA player. I, I don't think anybody's ever sat around and just mused during a regular season. Jimmy Butler, I mean, he's right there with LeBron and Kevin Durant and all these people. But you get that guy into a playoff setting and you turn the lights on. And we've seen it time and again in his career, the dude's there for it. Most notably during Miami's bubble run when Butler was just a man possessed and they're tearing through the Bucks and Giannis and he's going toe-to-toe -to -toe with LeBron as an individual. Most notably in game five, which is one of the iconic forgotten games because the bubble year was just weird, but LeBron versus Jimmy Butler in game five of the NBA finals was just incredible. And Butler went toe to toe matching bucket for bucket for bucket till Miami pulls that out and then just gets swamped in game six. But that's a good example of a player who is good in traditional settings and makes even more sense within the slow it down, grind it out, ratchet up the pressure style of the postseason. Works both ways. Uh, in my book, the person with the most on the line in these particular playoffs is James Harden, a player that I have been very vocal that I do not like. I do not enjoy watching him play basketball. Uh, if he continues to crash and burn the playoffs, I'd be a very happy man. And he is the one who I look at more than anybody, where I go, if you have a truly scintillating postseason run. If you can match what you've been able to do over a lot of regular seasons, if you are able to get into some of these games, game six on the road or game seven, whatever, and piece together a performance that is more akin to what he's done in the regular season, that's going to be a really big step forward for James Harden, who just has a litany of not just playoff exits, but really poor games in closeout games with the Rockets in the past and the Nets somewhat last year, despite the fact that he was playing with a hamstring injury. But he's the one who I point at most of all. And I say, you have not shown me that the way that you play basketball is built for the postseason. It's just not. Especially with him as the focal point of an offense, that heliocentric style of basketball, it's really hard to get that to work in the playoffs on the offensive side. The other team just knows it's the one person, they're the be-all, end-all. They're creating their own buckets. They're creating everyone else's buckets. That's really hard and has not historically held up under the stress of the playoffs. You need that dispersed. Now, he's got that with Philly. 
because he has an MVP candidate with Joel Embiid. He should be the first option. And after watching game one, you go, uh, is Tyrese Maxey the second best player on the Philadelphia roster? That's kind of weird. But if you only care about winning a championship this year, Tyrese Maxey taking a huge step up and being able to do what he did to Toronto, drop 30 plus points on, I think, 14 for 21 from the field. That's good for you as a team. Now, in a lot of other people's books, the person with the most on the line in this postseason is Chris Paul. I don't agree with that because I don't think a team championship changes his legacy really that much at all. Been very vocal about that in the past. Is beating a dead horse. Most disagree with that take of mine. I think Chris Paul's body of work, yeah, an NBA championship, that'd be great. Be the cherry on top of the Sunday, but you watch this guy play for almost two decades now and get put in so many of these high leverage spots throughout his career, whether it was early on with New Orleans or the Clippers or the Rockets or now with the Suns, there's so many times, even with the Oklahoma City Thunder and his one season there. And I just go, no, this guy is here for it. I don't care what anybody says. I don't care that he has not won a team championship. This guy's game is built for the pressure of the playoffs. I remember in 2017, I need kind of continual reminders of this stuff because there's so many things going on in the world of sports. And sometimes I just forget things that deep down I know. And for whatever reason, I just had kind of soured a little bit on Paul during his time with the Clippers. Lob City just turned into... Every game, everybody's crying about this and flopping about this, and it just wasn't that fun. So I'm kind of out on the Clippers, and they play the Jazz in the 2017 playoffs. Jazz, my hometown team. And Blake Griffin goes down in game three of that series. At the time, the Clippers win that, or go up 2-1. So now the Jazz are licking their chops because it's just, it's Paul and nobody really else. You know, DeAndre Jordan, all right, whatever. The Jazz ended up winning the series in seven games. But what I remember from this, most of all, is Chris Paul and just kind of my renewed appreciation for him as a basketball player. He finishes the series with 25 and 10 a game. But the stats, as they cannot throughout Chris Paul's career, the stats couldn't possibly tell the whole story. Those are great stats. Don't get me wrong. But I vividly remember within this series just how Chris Paul controls the cadence of every game he's in. That's a very valuable skill in the regular season. That's why he's had a lot of team success within the regular season. It's an even more valuable skill within the playoffs. Remember, slow it down, grind it out. More isolation style of basketball really stresses your half-court sets. Chris Paul in that series was just, it was the cat and mouse. It's the puppet master. It's all the things that we've known him to be. It's the point god, right? So the Clippers lose in game seven, but... Again, I go, uh, the way that Chris Paul plays basketball, especially in a postseason setting, it makes a lot of sense. And it's pretty fun. If I can separate from the flopping and the incessant whining, that competitive fire and especially just this kind of natural understanding of how to play, this ability to settle your team during the storm when things are getting tight in fourth quarters of games, which Chris Paul has done his whole career, that stuff makes sense especially in the postseason. So I'm bringing this up for obvious reasons because I'm in and out of games over the weekend. Um, and one of the ones that I settled down for is the Sunday nighter, the Suns and the Pelicans, which is not a good, it was not going to be a good basketball game, but I got bets out the wazoo because sometimes that's how you make a not so good game good. <laughs> and as I'm watching this basketball game, 
first and foremost, what I'm thinking about is, holy shit, we are in 2022. Three years ago, Chris Paul was traded for Russell Westbrook and two first-round draft picks and two first-round pick swaps. Just an unbelievable moment in retrospect for what many people considered at the time the worst contract in basketball. That's what a lot of people were saying about Chris Paul. He's over the hill. He's obviously diminishing here with Harden. You can tell. Look at his stats. Look at just the fact that James Harden doesn't want to play with him anymore. As it turns out, the problem was not Chris Paul. We now know that in retrospect. He was traded for all of those things three years ago. Goes to Oklahoma City, has the one year where, again, I tip my cap to him. I think he did something that virtually no NBA star would do. He played that entire season with a team that wanted to tank. He dragged them, fighting tooth and nail, into the playoffs. Truly an incredible achievement. They lose in the first round, seven games to the Rockets. I don't care. That's one of the most impressive things I've ever watched an NBA star do. But he gets moved out to Phoenix. We've seen the career resurgence. He's now in season 17. And so Sunday night, I'm sitting there and I'm watching the game. They're blowing him out in the first half and then things start to tighten up. And what has what was a over 20-point deficit for the Pelicans, it gets stretched down, 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 down. They get down to six in the fourth quarter. You feel those walls closing in. Again, this is a really, really integral part of the postseason. It's just going to happen. Teams aren't going to give up and punt on games like they do all the time in the regular season. It's the Pelicans, to their credit, they fight back. Cut it down to six in the fourth. The walls are closing in. What are we going to do? Chris Paul comes in, and he does what Chris Paul does. <laughs> so to illustrate this and to kind of set the stage for certain fragments of Chris Paul's game that I want to talk about, fragments that I love so much within the playoffs, I'm going to read a few paragraphs. It comes from Jason Quick of The Athletic. It's about what happened on Sunday night. There was no easy way Sunday to pinpoint the how or why Chris Paul took over game one in this best of seven series. It was just widely accepted that this is what the greats of the game do. Said Suns guard Devin Booker, it shouldn't surprise anybody. He is built for these moments. It's one thing to be built for a moment. It's another to seize the moment. And Paul took over game one with a performance that captured why he is one of the greatest point guards to ever play the game. His final numbers, 30 points, 10 assists, 7 rebounds, 2 turnovers, don't do justice to the impact and timing of his performance that carried Phoenix to a 110-99 win over New Orleans. End quote. So there's a lot of words that are used within this that jump out to people who have watched the career of Chris Paul. Right out of the gate, that idea, there's really no easy way to pinpoint how or why. That matches up. Because unlike some of the other greats of the game that we've seen over time that really make sense within the postseason, like think of LeBron, think of Jordan, think of Durant, who have these box scores that just are filled to the end of the earth. Paul doesn't bring that same kind of thing. He, he had it on Sunday night, 30-10-7. That's, you know, LeBron would love that stat line. But what Paul does is very different. That idea that he's built for these moments, like Booker's saying. This idea that his final numbers just don't do justice to the impact and to the timing of his performance. Paul's talking after the game about hearing Willie Green, the coach of the Pelicans, saying, Go under on screens. You know, this is just how we're going to do it right now in the fourth quarter. So when Paul brings that high pickup, just go under. And Paul goes, all right. I mean, I'm a basketball computer. My brain is processed to just understand everything that needs to happen, the correct basketball play. It's a lot like LeBron. So you go under the screen, I'm going to start shooting threes. And he just drills it. I mean, at the start of the fourth quarter, 
The 23-point lead is down to eight. Paul scores 17 of the next 19 for Phoenix. The other two points in that stretch, it's a pass to JaVale McGee for a dunk. I mean, he's responsible for literally their next 19 points. And it was just a clinic on how to play point guard, how to understand the pacing and the rhythm of a basketball game. It could be fast. It could be slow. It could be threes. It could be at the rim. We saw all of that on Sunday night. So he finishes with 19 fourth quarter points. He's seven for eight from the field. The only miss is right at the end of the game. He's just dribbling out the clock and shoots a three, misses it. For all intents and purposes, he's perfect in that quarter. Not just within the box score, but the concept of playing basketball. That's a very important thing. And one that it weathers any storm. Again, Chris Paul has not won a team championship. I do not consider that a reflection of Chris Paul, the basketball player. Because much like some of those all-time greats, I'll go back to LeBron. Chris Paul has the same brain. He doesn't have the exact same body, but he has the brain that understands the cadence and the rhythm of how to play this particular playoff game. That could be different from game two. That could be different from game five. That could be different from game seven. That could be different from next series. There's so much versatility that's required just from a cerebral standpoint to succeed in the playoffs. That's what Chris Paul brings to the table. So he's got 30. He's got 10 assists. He's 75% from the field in this game. Uh, just... A stat line that matches up historically with very few. Uh, it's the fourth time in playoff history that people met those parameters. Jordan did it in game two of the 91 NBA Finals. Paul himself did it in 2014. LeBron did it in 2020 against Portland. Again, we're seeing just an all-time great. You put them in a playoff series, and most of them are just going to amplify what they already know how to do. Not all. James Harden. But most, they're really good at basketball. And when the lights get a little bit brighter, they're going to say, all right, let's ratchet my game up a little bit to meet this moment. That's Chris Paul. This is a quote from Monty Williams, the coach of the Suns after the game, talking about Chris Paul. I've seen it a ton. Our local media is probably sick of me saying it, but it's something I'm grateful for. It's not a play call. It's not an X's and O's thing. It's just his ability to understand when he needs to take over a game. I don't think I've ever been around anybody like Chris who just has that innate feel for that time, end quote. So this is what really separates people in my mind that I want to watch, that I really prefer as a fan and just can kick back and go, I don't know how this is happening, but holy shit, this is fun. It's one of the great mystical qualities of the career of Aaron Rodgers. I've talked about that a ton, but there are just some times where I go, I don't know, this defies my comprehension of the quarterback position. There's something going on with his brain and his body that I do not know about and nobody else does. Innate feel. It's a word that Monty Williams is throwing out. He would know. He's the coach of this dude for the last couple of years. It's that natural understanding of basketball that I spoke about. LeBron's made a career off of it. Paul has made a career off of it. It's a skill set. It's, it's a thing that really, really, really weathers what the playoffs throw in your path. Adversity at every single turn, every single game, every single series. So that's a good transition into the other thing that really stuck out as the playoffs are getting up and going. Because innate Phil, I hear it and I go, yeah, I really like that. And speaking of dudes with innate Phil, there was a dude who was a part of the best basketball game I've watched in a while. It's the game that got me going, okay, I did not care for this NBA regular season virtually at all. But I remember there's something about playoff basketball that gets my juices flowing. Boston and Brooklyn. And especially Kyrie Irving. Because Kyrie doesn't have the all-around, all-encompassing 
ability and understanding that Chris Paul has. But as far as combination of gifts physically and a natural understanding, an innate feel of how to play offense, I have not really seen many people who can match that. And I had a lot of questions about Kyrie in the past. When LeBron makes the decision to go to Cleveland the second time, me being the biggest LeBron supporter, I'm going, okay, you did need to leave Miami because that roster was old and decrepit. And it really showed in the 2014 finals against the Spurs. You just understood that was a team on its last legs, except for LeBron. So I said, get the hell out of there. Go find another team. Identify who you think you can win a championship with. He goes back to Cleveland, which part of me says, this is a really cool story. And man, it would be incredible if he could bring this city a championship. But I'm not convinced that this is necessarily a championship roster around him. You need a championship roster to win, no matter how good you are. Kyrie's the prize jewel that's there waiting. This mercurial point guard who knows how to score, has had no team success yet in the NBA. Can't really blame him. Those Cleveland teams just weren't good, but you never really know how that's going to work. They trade for Kevin Love, who's been an incredible player on really bad Minnesota teams. He's putting up these huge double-doubles. You never really know how that's going to fit when you pair them with a player who is better, how they're going to fit around somebody like LeBron. So I have a lot of questions going into that 2014-2015 seasons. How's Kyrie going to fit with LeBron James as the centerpiece now? Not Kyrie as the centerpiece. What's Kyrie going to bring in the playoffs? How is he going to perform under the duress of these adverse situations? There's kind of a moment that I remember that it was a regular season game, but it starts to click into place in my mind where I go, all right, something here makes sense. It was March of 2015. Cleveland's playing against the San Antonio Spurs. I believe it was a weekday TNT game. I remember watching it. Kyrie goes nuclear. He scores 57 points in the game. He drills a three-pointer at the buzzer to send the game into overtime where the Cavaliers win. Just one of the best scoring performances I've ever watched. LeBron's going for 31 in the game, and it's just an afterthought. LeBron's like raving about Kyrie after the game, just saying, yep, this is why I came here, essentially. Uh, this dude just, he knows how to score the basketball. So it's starting to click into my mind because I'm saying, all right, I'm watching something pretty special. And LeBron's saying things. And if LeBron's saying things, it's it's much like Monty Williams saying things. He's going to know. LeBron knows basketball. So, you know, we, we know that Cavaliers have a ton of success. Some of that is attributed to Kyrie. They make the next three finals. They win the championship in 2016. They honestly could have won the championship in 2015 if Kyrie didn't fracture his kneecap in game one of the finals that year. Who knows? But Kyrie leaves. Kyrie turns into the, the oddball that we know him to be. He turns a lot of people against him with just very various behaviors. But it obscures what, what again, I'd kind of forgotten that Sunday really just shined a big old spotlight on. Kyrie in the playoffs makes sense. You can have your various opinions about him. Uh, as, a, as a basketball player, Kyrie is terrifying. Regardless of the defense played, that's the number one thing that jumped out to me. Playoffs, they're a different beast than the regular season. That's all Friday's show. Go and listen to it. The defense intensity goes from a four to a 10. And against Boston, who has the best defense in basketball, that's pretty scary. So game one, I mean... Everything I want to watch. If we could just put that game and make every basketball game it, 
basketball would again be one of my favorite sports instead of lagging behind what football and hockey bring to the table. But it was an incredible basketball game. The stars are there. The defensive intensity is there. And Kyrie's the focal point. Boston crowd's booing him. Oh, he's flipping people off. Oh, that's the sideshow. What was incredible, what was sensational, is the way that Kyrie Irving plays offensive basketball. He scores 39 in the game. He's 12 for 20. Much like Paul, the box score does not do justice to watching that game be played, and specifically that innate fill that Kyrie has for basketball and just things that he can do where I go, all right, I don't know. <laughs> There's something there that you have within you that I can't understand because you are continually able to create separation and score a lot of times against the very best defenders in basketball, whether that's Marcus Smart or Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum. There are other times that they play perfect defense because they are as good as you can find as far as perimeter defenders are concerned. And Kyrie was just drilling stuff right in their eye, especially down the stretch. I mean, he hits a jumper with two and a half minutes to go that you can't play better defense. He just squares up and drills it. He hits the go-ahead three in the final minute. Same kind of thing. Marcus Smart, he's underneath him. He's up in his jersey. He just drills it. That kind of stuff makes sense in the playoffs. Isolation basketball, half-court sets. It's part of why, despite all of Brooklyn's flaws, uh, who else is going to do stuff besides Kyrie and Durant? Can they ever play defense? You watch a game there and you go, yeah, I don't know. They might lose the series. They probably will. But this type of skill set makes so much sense in the playoffs. It's why everybody is willing to turn a blind eye and say, we know Kyrie's going to be a pain in the ass. We know this might go terribly wrong after a year or two. We know he might fracture the locker room. We know all these things. But we've seen it with Cleveland. We saw it on Sunday. This guy in the playoffs makes sense. So the flip side of that game is the last thing that I want to talk about that really stood out as the playoffs are starting. There were three things that I wanted to talk about on today's show more than anything. Because the regular season, different beast from the playoffs. Again, that's all Friday's show. Today, we're going down onto the nitty-gritty details. Because the opposite side of what Kyrie was doing was the Boston Celtics went up winning the game. Jason Tatum, really cool buzzer beater. Spinning layup. But what stood out on that side of the ball as I'm looking for little gambling tidbits and just trying to project into this three-month window and say, all right, who makes sense as championship contender? Let's just start there. And I watch that game. I go, oh boy, this Boston Celtics defense makes a lot of sense to me as a championship anchor. And I don't say this as an overreaction. I don't say the Celtics are going to win because they won game one by one point and they played good defense and Kyrie sometimes torched it regardless. I say this is, all right, this is something that is built to withstand what the playoffs has to offer. Really high-level isolation scores. You're just going to make life hard. Sometimes they will beat you. Sometimes Kyrie's going to drop 39 no matter what you do. But this style of defense specifically, it makes sense in the playoffs. It's one thing to watch successful defense in the regular season. I think of my own hometown team, and I go, the Utah Jazz have had a lot of really good regular season defenses for a lot of years. And that structure and style of playing defense is not necessarily built to withstand the pressure of the playoffs. Isolation scoring in great quantities again and again and again. You're just going to get the very best at that particular skill. And it's an unfair ask for a team that has one really good defender, and his name's Rudy Gobert, 
and he just gets put in a lot of unfortunate places, especially the last two years. Because they just draw you into an action. And when you're playing against a team that has Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, that's hard to play defense in that manner. But the Celtics, even without Time Lord, maybe their most valuable defender. At the very least, their second most with Marcus Smart. Or Jason T. I don't know. Actually, now that I'm thinking about all their defenders, who knows who's their most valuable? The main point is their most valuable big man defender is not playing. But what I watch on Sunday... Makes a ton of sense because I watch Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. You're not going to find a better three-man perimeter unit to throw against two incredible isolation scores. And as much success as Kyrie had, that's as much as they frustrated Kevin Durant, who's turning the ball over a bunch, does not have a great day shooting. They're not going to do that every game. Kevin Durant, more times than not, is probably going to get the better of you because he's one of the best basketball players I've ever watched. However... When you have a truly breathtaking amount of speed and anticipation and wingspan together on the floor at one time, as you do with those three people, as you do when you add Derek White and Al Horford in the mix, that was their crunch time closing unit. That's an incredible amount of speed and athleticism and defensive understanding. Remember that innate feel thing? You see that jump out. Five-man unit working as one, just movement, movement, movement. I think of the final possession that Brooklyn has. They bring a blitz, smarts on Kyrie, and they're like, we got to get the ball out of this man's hands. And Horford, they bring him to just, let's get it out. So Smart's trying to ride him off the three-point line. He rides him into Horford, who now has to extend the line of defense. And it's just, it's the old adage attached to a string. Just string him along, string him along. They run him off into the corner. Perfect defense. Force the ball out of his hands to Durant, who now, Jason Tatum is in his jersey. Force him into a really hard three-point shot. He misses. They don't call a timeout. It leads directly to the final game-winning layup. There's stuff that makes sense, even more so in the playoffs than the regular season. And what Boston has, that, that particular recipe for playing defense, it makes so much sense in the playoffs. Sometimes I need to see it a little bit. Sometimes I just need to watch one game and I go, yeah, this is something you can anchor a championship team with. I'm not here to say that the Celtics are winning the NBA championship after one game. That would be absurd. But... This part of their team makes complete sense to me and places them in the championship tier. I like seeing that in a playoff setting. I have one game of evidence. Maybe they go on and lose to Brooklyn. Maybe they don't. This way of playing basketball on the defensive side, I understand it. It has succeeded in the past. I feel very confident saying it will continue to succeed in the future. Just put a lot of long, switchable defenders out on the floor. And as it turns out, it's really hard to score against that, even for the very best scores in the world. Jordan and Pippen, they won a bunch of championships doing that. A combination like Draymond and Clay or LeBron and Wade or, I mean, last year, Giannis and Middleton and Holiday, it's that same recipe. It's a long line of this type of defense having great success in the postseason. It makes sense in the regular season, and it is a style of play that we have seen time and again. Definitely hold up under the duress of playoff pressure. Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. Do not forget to sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every Wednesday. You can go to chrisrawl.com, hit the subscribe button, put your email in, and one day from now, it will be there in your inbox. Now go about your day, have fun, and I will talk to you on Friday. <laughs>